Hello, young lady. Yeah. I see you're looking at this uh, $4 million painting. Uh-huh. And, and did you know that it's actually a fraud that I helped perpetrate on the art world? <laughs> I've spent decades fucking with rich people just for fun. <laughs> Don't even get me started on the number of fake Jackson Pollock paintings I've sold over the years. It's a lot easier than fighting Nazis for Jewish artifacts, let me tell you. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to No Time for Love, Dr. Jones where we follow the fictional adventures of Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. as he bounces off of real-world history and important figures and occasionally art. For whatever reason. I am your host, Jamie Chambers, and this is my sister, Bambi. Hello. We are keeping the Indiana Jones train rolling for free a little bit longer as we get the main show kind of back on its feet. So normally this would be content for our $5 or more subscribers on ChainsawHistory.com, but you are getting to hear this artistic adventure of Indiana Jones for $0. It's so weird, y'all. So weird. <laughs> so you, if you are one of our paid subscribers, we love and appreciate you. It is our hope to, uh, you know, one day be able to buy like entire meals for our family with this show. <laughs> so if you like um, what you're hearing, head to ChainsawHistory.com and we can become your French prostitutes <laughs> as seen in this episode. Yeah, we're, we're ready to make tens and tens of dollars. Dozens, entire dozens of dollars. So for anyone who wants to follow along with our little adventures of, of currently young Indiana Jones, you can uh, go to a YouTube channel called Young Indie Restored, at least until the Disney Corporation finds out, and you can actually watch. There's one of the playlists on there called, um, it's called Chronological Order, and it literally is following along the same order we are, because in our trek through the life of Indiana Jones, we started with him at nine years old. Uh, leaving with his parents uh, as his father goes on a worldwide lecture tour. And at this point, let's see, we have bounced from, uh, going, we went from London to pick up his tutor. We bounced uh, down to Egypt, uh, where we had a murder mystery. Yeah. Then, Rashid! Uh, yes, then we zapped up to Morocco for adventures in child slavery. Which was very weird. A little jaunt in uh, marital infidelity in Italy. Which was also very weird. So at this point, you know, we've had some heavy stuff. Actually, honestly, every episode has had a serious shit going on. We've had yeah. murder. I mean, we, let's see. We, we, we had a murder, child slavery, um, and yes, a pre abandoning your family to <laughs> run off on a romantic adventure. And then this one is kind of a comedy. This one's kind of a more goofy romp. And and when you're coming into it with the other episodes weighing on you, you're not expecting it to go this way at all. No, it's it's very like the tone of this one is hysterically weird. Yep. So like, you know, this episode just to give you a little 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 peek uh, as to what's ahead. This is this episode features a Spanish maniac <laughs> repeatedly firing his pistol into the air, a 9-year-old boy hanging out with naked women and prostitutes, um desecration of a corpse, and of course the aforementioned art fraud. Plus many historical figures in this one. Oh yeah, like like this is going to be the longest one of those sections we get to. And speaking of sections, I don't know, I'm making this up as I go. This is the section where we talk about the plot and major story points of each episode, such as they are. So, you ready? 
Always. Let's talk about it. So our adventure begins, as always, in the 1990s. As for some reason, uh, old-ass Indiana Jones. <laughs> yes, this ancient fucking guy who wears the exact same thing his every little, single day. His, his shirt and bow tie, his rumpled coat, but always his signature fedora. And his cane. His cane, his eye patch with his uh, his glasses over. It's and all... he is this time he has wandered into an art gallery where apparently there's going to be a very uh, high end auction. Yeah, and we n- it's never explained why he's there. Well, he's... it's never explained why he's anywhere. Yeah, even though, like I said, I'm, you're assuming at least unlike some of these other ones where it's like, let's see, last episode it was just like he's playing pool, and that makes him think about the time his mother cheated on his dad. <laughs> Because of physics, at least this one is a little more direct. Like he probably came here because he heard this painting. Yeah, he's like, he, he's like, I got personal history with this fucking painting, <laughs> and I got to tell a random stranger about it for four straight goddamn hours. And um, what she was really into. Oh it, no, though. she gets instantly into it. So here's so so let me let's set the stage for our listeners. So you see, old Indiana Jones uh, wanders in as a number of people are, are remarking about a Degas painting and. It's, and in, um, it is actually a very famous painting um, called A Woman by the Toilette or Woman at the Toilet or, or whatever. But just basically it's a bathing woman seen from behind with yeah. her kind of arm kind of up with a sponge. At yeah, her and shoulder. she's in like a basin. Yeah, an old wash tub. Um, and then old uh, Indy just immediately just starts to start volunteering information to this pretty blonde yuppie who's just there, you know, admiring uh, the day gone. There's there's a few other like fussy art people making their own comments about the painting, and she's like, "You you know the day gone?" He's like, "Yes, I was there when this was painted. She gave me a whole new understanding of art." And then and the lady was the reaction was literally like, "You were there when it was painted? That's really neat. Yeah. You clearly senile old bastard." But like you said, she like most people in this show. Old Indiana Jones has this like spell he casts over people where the moment he stops talking, they're like, they can't leave. They're cornered. They're trapped. (laughs) And for whatever reason, they're excited to be there. Yeah. Like by by the end, like like the last one, he got a, like a biker mama crying over the romance of his mother uh, and this guy who is not his dad. And then this time he's got this woman just like mesmerized. Like mesmerized. And apparently like... As we see later, like he's followed her from the floor of the art gallery into the auction itself. But that's it, because the moment he starts talking, we dissolve because we got we got we only got like forty two minutes, you know, with you know, not accounting for commercials. We got to pack some shit into this one. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much shit packed. So so old Indy's like, picture this, France, nineteen oh eight. I was on a world lecture tour with mom and dad, and so. He immediately starts giving us like history points, like the fact that George Lucas did this. And like, I, I don't talk about this part much because, like, I'm not gonna watch all of them. But every single episode of this show had like little historical documentaries that were meant to like be used in the classroom. The uh, mm-hmm. the whole uh, pitch was that you would show episodes of the show in the classroom, then you'd watch these documentaries about the people that were met in the show. So that's why, and so it's like there's always this. And they always just cram extra stuff, which is why Miss Seymour is always like, Henry, what, when was that pyramid made? And he's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that was the pyramid. You know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. so in this case, uh, you hear all the old Indiana Jones voiceover going, back home, Taft was elected president and Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight boxing champion. 
Yeah, let's just throw that so in just for like no literally reason. Literally nothing to do with anything else, but those are those are true historical facts, Bambi. They're giving it's he's like, I gotta set the scene for Great. you. So then we um we see Ms. Seymour taking little Henry around just gorgeous, iconic locations in Paris. Because mm-hmm. as you say, the real money in this show was spent on the cinematography and the location scouting and And in this one, the, it was just like he said a kind of a sad goodbye to his mom as his dad whisked her off to whatever the yep. fuck they were yeah, doing. Yeah, this time mom and dad aren't even like, like, and once again, we're not going in the order this aired on television, but like in our order, like last episode, Henry really, like Indiana Jones was not the main character. It was actually his mom. Yeah. Whereas this one, they aren't even characters. They literally, you see them at the very beginning, fucking off to God knows where. They don't even say, because it doesn't matter. All you need to know is that it's just Henry and Miss Seymour in Paris, alone, staying in a hotel. Yep. And he's mostly bored. Yeah. So, you know, they, uh, so Miss Seymour's taking him. So at the beginning, they're, they're walking down the streets of Paris. So Henry uh, gives some change to a dude with a monkey in a squeeze box. Um... And he is denied delicious candies and yeah, pastries. Yeah, he was like, I would love the candy. And she is like, it is too early for candy. You just candy. had your breakfast, young man. Tell me brain-enhancing nutrition for you. Yep. Um, and then we find out that they're they're heading to the Louvre before it even opens. they got to get there for the, just so that when they first right unlock the doors, they're going to be those people. So remember how last week um, Henry seemed overly fascinated with that statue of uh, the angel cupping a woman's breast. Mm-hmm. And um, David. Yeah, and the statue. But this time he seems sort of bored by the painted titties on the wall. He literally like rolls his eyes and walks away from a completely nude woman, which is displayed on network television because it's art. And this is like the second week in a row we've gotten primetime titties on display for a nine-year-old boy. Which, you know... It's not the worry. worst thing that happens to him in this no, episode. No, we're going way farther than that in this episode. <laughs> this is this is France, baby. So so then they stroll over to the, the Mona Lisa, where Miss Seymour seems horrified by the concept of the model being forced to repeatedly smile for three years straight. It's like it's a, it just wounds her British soul. <laughs> Even though it's like, if, any, if you know anything about the real Mona Lisa, it's that, uh, that, that woman was like spoiled and constantly you like entertained in order to, to, to come back and sit there mm-hmm. for da Vinci over and over again, which we'll talk about later. So in front of the Mona Lisa, they meet this skinny young dude, about 16 years old. And insert famous name. It's our very first one here. Uh, his name is Norman. Norman. Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell is standing there uh, in front of the Mona Lisa. And interestingly enough, this is the first time in the show I have noted um, little Henry introduces himself as Indy, and Miss Seymour instantly corrects him. Now, I did see in the script there was a few times of, the, of there was lines that were cut where Henry referred himself as Indiana Jones, and there's a few lines where one of the adults in a previous episode would just call him Indy randomly, but they never even established why ever. This is the first time he's actually saying, "No, I am self-identifying as Indy." And then she, no, no, introduce yourself properly, young man. You are Henry Jones Jr. And he's like, That's, fuck. Fuck that name. I hate that name. That is not the name that is going to be on a movie marquee. That is a lame name. That's my dad's name. And have you seen that he's guy? He's like, yeah, that guy sucks. So, uh, yes, as you say, importantly, this is, they just ran into teenage Norman Rockwell, who's painted as this, this scrawny kid. Um, and they, and the three apparently spend like the rest of the day studying paintings 
Uh, and Ms. Seymour says they still have the modern art left to go. So this is where we see our first Degas. And Henry gets an art lesson about Impressionism. And Norman says, Impressionists claim it's the freshest way for an artist to see the world. And this is the point where little ADHD Henry is bored as shit of yeah, standing around like, looking uh-huh. at paintings all day. Because if there's one consistent character trait of young Indiana Jones, it's that he cannot sit still. He cannot just stand around and do nothing. He gets bored so easily. Which explains why he's the professor who doesn't actually like to teach class. He would rather get shot at by Germans. <laughs> so then Miss Seymour says, yeah, even realizes this may be a little much to ask, uh, even for her. So she offers to take the boys to something a little more interesting. And they're like, oh, cool, we're in Paris. This is going to be fucking awesome. And then, nope. Cut to, please, please describe what happens oh, next. They go to this, like, they go to a weird-ass puppet show. And it's, it's like a morale, like a like almost a medieval morality play with, like, demons in hell. And I mean, and the two kids are, like, bored as shit and there's little kids all around yeah they're surrounded by like five-year-olds and then like they're, even indy is the older kid and then norman is like i'm a fucking teenager i get mm-hmm. drunk with artists every night yeah because so they're bored but when and but the Ms. little Seymour, demon puppets but, 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 but they pretend they loved it to miss oh Seymour yeah because they want to pull some bullshit this is where the hijinks begin, and there's and they do not stop for the rest of this episode. Yeah, this is where you get to buckle up. Yes, so um, they assure Miss Seymour that it was great, but oh well, um, she tells him, it's time to go back and write your giant fucking term paper on Leonardo da Vinci, you nine-year-old. And they were like, no, but please, Henry say, one more puppet show. God, no, yeah, we need, what we need in our life is to close this fucking puppet show down. <laughs> Please, Miss Seymour. Henry and Norman gaslight Miss Seymour and convince her they wanna they wanna shut the puppet theater completely down, see the next showing, and she's got like letters to write and personal business to attend to and, and want some peace and fucking quiet. So she's like, This sounds like a great idea. One hour. And she's and she's like, You must come back to the hotel straight away and and get back in your paper. So, like, you know, if we're going thinking back to the last episode. She she has to be thinking at this point that the child slavery thing kind of scared him straight. Like, there's no way he would pull any shit after what happened, you and, know, in yeah. Morocco. <laughs> and, and he and he didn't do anything like the last episode in Florence. He he you know he he was stayed well behaved. With her. He like at one point he kind of ran over to a balcony, but never out of her sight. So she must be thinking, you know what? I got this kid whipped into shape, and he saw what happens when you just run off in a strange city. So I can just trust. This this wholesome Norman Rockwell fellow who who would never get my my young charge in any kind of trouble whatsoever. And then the shenanigans start. Never trust children. No. <laughs> she is so as a longtime teacher is naive as fuck. Well, that's because she taught grown people. Well, no, and also too her her student previous student was his dad who didn't do any of this and never did anything interesting even once. That we know of. So having ditched Miss Seymour, uh, Norman uses reverse psychology to trick Henry into going to see the real artists. Because at first, like, Henry's like, art? I've been doing, I've been dealing with art all fucking day, dude. Mm. I would rather do anything else. But then he's like, Norman's like, yeah, you're right. It's probably too dangerous, you know, for a little kid like you. And then Indiana Jones is like, 
Fuck! Danger? I'm in! I love danger. Danger's my favorite. So we see them walk in the streets some more. You see acrobats and blacksmiths and general weirdos everywhere. They stop at an art supply store so Norman can pick up some pencils and a notebook. And Henry, for the first time, looks in Norman's sketchbook and suddenly sees, like, really great, you know, pencil sketches and charcoal sketches. He was really good. So the first picture he sees is apparently Dr. Alfonso Rockwell, who Norman explains is the inventor of the electric chair. Now, I didn't actually, this is one I didn't look up because I already have a thousand other people. I'm just going to assume that is a correct historical fact, and I'm never going to find out, and if and I will violently defend my right to never be corrected on this. <laughs> so Dr. Alfonso Rockwell, totally the inventor of the electric chair. He thought hanging was inhumane and reckoned the chair was kinder. We learned that Norman's parents are extremely religious only moments before the two boys are solicited by French sex workers. Mm-hmm. And Henry takes a second look at the blonde. Yeah, he's like, hey. And the blondes are like, and the prostitutes are like, we don't give a fuck. You got, you got money. Hey, baby. <laughs> but no, Norman drags them away. In fact, honestly, it's like those girls are thinking like, you know, well, maybe not the nine-year-old, but like, you know, t- teenage boy, you can get them get paid and it won't take long. Yep. Which is good, solid business <laughs> sense right there. But nope, Henry nope. is dragged away. They've got places away. to go. They got, there's art. This is about art, Bambi. Uh-huh. The boys reach their destination and grab a table. Nearby, Beethoven is being played on another fucking accordion because it's Paris. And they spot uh, they spot the actual Degas, the man, at a nearby table talking mad shit straight to an artist's face about this guy's work. And Degas this old ass... Like, describe, describe, describe Degas for us. He, he was just like this like, <laughs> like frail Santa Claus looking dude. Yes, and, and Degas is absolutely fucking brutal on this younger mustachioed artist that is looking over the piece. And then this other guy just jumps up and starts yelling. And we learn quickly, it's our another, uh, next historical figure. Picasso. Pablo Picasso. So yes, that's the guy who's been shit on by Degas is none other than Picasso himself. And I think you all know where this is going. Uh, Pablo screams about how he can paint better than Degas in his sleep. That he could paint Degas into the ground. And Norman Rockwell will not listen to shit about Degas and his watch. So he walks up Hell looking. no. <laughs> yeah. So he walks up looking pissed like he's going to just like throw hands with <laughs> Picasso. And then Henry looks down and sees that Picasso is fucking strapped. He has got a pistol tucked in his belt. And he looks like a goddamn maniac. No, he is a... And, and, no, it doesn't look... He, he is, is. An, a maniac. This entire episode, he is a lunatic. Which, you know, Picasso. Fair. All right, so... so Pablo Picasso, as he loudly tells us, invites the boys to his studio to see him be the best artist in the history of all fucking goddamn time. Because, you know, Picasso is humble. Uh-huh. So we cut to a naked woman. Yep. <laughs> like, literally, you literally see her bare ass. Uh, yeah, and a wash bin. Which I found out that on the original uh, network airing, they actually uh, used the cut of the scene where you where couldn't buzzed. see her. No, they literally just, just cut it slightly differently so you... It was after they'd pulled away from her butt cheeks, but but for the home video release, they were like, it's fine, because we can have bare butts on television even now, but this was pre-NYPD Blue, so they weren't ready for butts on TV yet. Yeah. So, but anyway. the boys get a full display. But yeah, the whole point is, Indiana Jones, young Henry, nine-year-old Henry, is just 
10 feet away from a full frontal naked woman. And we are just calling it art. And he's like, I'm into art now. He's like, suddenly his appreciation for art is somehow born. His <laughs> first sight of some real in close in person T and A. Yep. And um, he was also very impressed with painting. Yeah. So um Henry and Norman watch and listen as Picasso rants and explains. And he's like he's like doing this uh his imitation Degas uh painting. And at one point you even see like this technique where his buddy brings in hot like boiling hot water and he like sprays it on the canvas to uh, mm-hmm. to wipe it down to get this effect that he's going for as this impressionist, you know, to get that whole that whole thing. And and so um Norman tells the other guy hanging out, who, by the way, happens to be another famous figure, but we'll talk about him later, because he's not, he's only, I think, only really mentioned by name at the end of the episode. So, for now, we just know he's just Picasso's, like, best friend, this French dude. And so, Norman tells him he really likes Picasso's paintings, but he doesn't want to see Picasso painting like other artists. He wants to see Picasso painting like Picasso. So, he gets taken into the side room to see the real shit. Uh, He pulls the canvas or the tarp off rather to reveal the actual like what we think of as Picasso the cubist mm-hmm. paintings classic Picasso shit and Picasso walks in uh, with a piece that looks suspiciously identical to the one we saw in the museum with old Indy at the beginning of the episode the woman washing herself the woman at the toilet and he's like see I can do a Degas but he can't do one of mine and he Indy looked really unimpressed by the yeah. Cubism paintings, by the way. Yeah. Just, he was like, what is this? I don't get this shit. Yeah, like a lot of people who first mm-hmm. get exposed to this kind of like, because like Impressionist was already one thing, because like, you know, the cycle, I mean, we'll talk about this later on, but it like, yeah, the whole movement toward art was always toward realism. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, this suddenly hit that period where they started saying, well, realism is not everything. And you can capture other things through that. So that's where we get doing that so and you see norman himself like once he got a good look at cubism he, he immediately did his own sketch and picasso is so impressed by norman's uh quick little sketch he signs it with his own name and just like ha ha, ha so fun. he's like i'm yeah have a souvenir kid and he's declares i'm hungry so now we uh move along to the french police arriving at the hotel because miss seymour has declared henry missing and presumed dead yeah yeah, she was a little frantic. And in the meantime, she's Henry's like, just I going am... off partying. She's like, do you have any idea what Professor Jones is going to do to me? <laughs> I will not be found. Oh, she's in she's in bad shape. So, uh, so the fat old French inspector declares that he speaks perfect English and that he's an expert, expert kidnapper of small children. <laughs> and then she did not look very pleased with yeah, that. She's like, oh yeah, Professor Clouseau here is really going to solve this case. Fuck. She's like, the only person who's going to solve this mystery is me. So back in the streets of Paris, Picasso recruits the prostitutes to accompany them to dinner, which is going to become important because he's because they're like, we're working. And he's like, you got to eat, don't you? <laughs> Come eat and party with us. And oh, do they? They do. And they have a great fucking time is what they do. Honestly, it looks like a pretty cool party. It does. Um, it's, it's wild. They go into a... Yeah, they're walking. They're, they're walking towards the party, and and that's where Henry has his last little moment of reflection that maybe Miss Seymour uh, is going to be worried about him. And his teenage older friend well, is like, "Fuck her." Yeah, and then the other, and the other fully adult older friend is also like, like "Forget that." Because apparently, it's totally cool to go like fucking hardcore party. Well, it's the other with one of children. little Henry's superpowers is that adults just. 
love the shit love out the of shit him. Of it. Like, I want to bring you into every inappropriate situation that a nine-year-old should never be in. It's like, you want to... <laughs> you don't have a sheltered life anymore, kid. It's like, you want to see some naked chicks? You want to get drunk with people in a bar until three o'clock in the morning? Boom. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so... This is Paris. Um, someone uh, delivers a box to Picasso at the bar. And uh, Picasso has Henry open the box and he looks inside and it's like a it's like a wooden model airplane he's like holy smokes a louis blois plane i can never pronounce blois um and you see burlesque dancers are on the the stage shaking what their mamas gave them everyone's just having a great fucking time yep they start yeah. everyone then just gets the up prostitutes, and starts the prostitutes drag both the boys norman and henry out on the dance floor norman's all about it henry's a little reluctant at first but he gets into it starts yeah. dancing with the blonde that he liked earlier mm mm-hmm. mhm because, you know, blondes and mommy issues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, anyway, um, and then while they're, the boys are doing that, that's when uh, Picasso leans over to his friend and hatches his evil scheme to get one over on old Degas. Picasso tells his friend that he's going to get Degas to sign the copycat painting he did earlier that day. The one he did just to kind of make a point to, to Norman and Indy. And I was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trick him into signing my painting because that's how good I am. And his friend was like, that sounds like, terrible. Like, Don't do it. Why, why are you being such a dick? Yeah, stop it. Like the whole time, even Picasso's friends are like, you're, you're a little much. You might yeah. want to just turn it down <laughs> from the 11. But he, but he never no, does. Never. That is against the Picasso way. All right, so we go jump back to the Parisian streets where the two pimps are checking up on the girls that Picasso dragged off earlier. And they're supposed to be working. Supposed to be making them that money. They gots to get paid and they are not happy. Yeah. Their girls should be working, not having a good time. Now, right at the moment, at least, despite the fact they're ridiculously dressed, this seems like a legitimate like threat. These are these are criminals, potentially violent criminals, who they're are pimps. looking for. Yeah, these are pimps. They're probably gonna they're, they're probably gonna slap around. Yeah, they're gonna slap some bitches. They're going to they're going to smack around. You know, some kids if they have to. Yeah, these guys. Every are serious. every moment those girls are not working the streets, that's money left right on the table, baby. That's some bullshit. These guys are not having any of it. And one of them is wearing a ridiculous like top hat, like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and like they're they're these guys are cartoon characters. Oh, they really are. I mean. They kind of looked like the villains from 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, like the, the two henchmen of Cruella yes. DeVille. They're very, that vibe is, is <laughs> spot it's, on. Yes, it really is. So, right. these imagine, imagine them as French pimps, and you pretty much <laughs> got a mental picture of what we're talking about. So, they jump into the bar and they confront uh, Picasso and his friend. And to show them they mean business, one of these pimps pulls out a goddamn straight razor. He unfolds it like, I'm about to slice you up. And then a good old-fashioned barroom brawl ensues. Yeah, things go awry. Yeah, things are, people are going crazy. And Henry demonstrates his usual suicidal bravery uh, because, like, the pimp grabs his, the girl he was dancing with and Henry immediately squares up and raises his fist and is ready to box. And then he's just like, somebody grabs him and throws him across the room like a Cabbage Patch Kid. <laughs> just like you're you are a tiny child get out of the barroom brawl which is funny he's like you know it's funny because like later on the, like he will be the guy who could fucking take on every single person in this room and beat them half to death well you gotta start you gotta somewhere. start somewhere he starts getting tossed like a rag doll 
Now it's absolute chaos. There's punches being thrown everywhere. And then and Henry just decides to grab the model airplane and just sail it through the chaos just for fun. Just screaming. Just like... Well, was did wasn't it like deliberate to hit someone? No, I think it just sailed back though, okay, because mm. he catches it like a boomerang on the way back. So I, I, I if, if it did, I missed that moment. Um, so then, so Picasso just takes one look around at this absolute madness and smiles his biggest smile and whips out his pistol and fires it into the ceiling like a goddamn maniac. It's like, woo-hoo. and he screams, "I love this town!" And that's that's when Henry and and Norman. The gun is what makes him realize maybe we should sliver, yeah. we should leave it's, now. It's probably time to head out. So everybody pours out of the streets, uh, and the the two pimps are unconscious at this point. They have been knocked out by the the various insanity, and Picasso screams for Henry to stay by his side. And then you know we have a little montage of them going a little bit further down the street. So we're getting later and later, like we're in the middle of the fucking night at this point. And Picasso is lecturing Henry about how artists are visionaries. Because I guess Henry's telling him, it's like, yeah, I got to write this paper on Da Vinci. And I was supposed to be already back and I'm I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I oh, know, let me, I'll tell you about Da Vinci. And drunk Picasso is like telling him. And so this is where I guess he's being inspired about how you can just corner somebody and force them to listen to you. <laughs> Lessons he will take to heart. But for whatever reason, he's also mesmerized with crazy ass Picasso. Yes, Picasso's like there. So he tells him, he's like, he gives this, Picasso gives this, um, he's talking about how like Da Vinci imagined airplanes hundreds of years before they were invented. And then, on the, and talking about how, how these artists are great visionaries. And this is juxtaposed by the, the other artists digging through the fucking trash <laughs> for food. So like, weird. What are they doing? He's like, no, oranges. It's like sometimes the shop boys miss an orange. Oh, delicious. delicious. Like you're talking about how visionary and amazing artists are as they are hobos dumpster diving. Which, for the record, this is the third time that they've eaten with Picasso in the same night. Yeah, because they started going. out one place and ordered food. He didn't get to eat it all, but he ordered his omelet. And then they went into the the crazy-ass fucking bar where they were getting food. That's right, And then now they're digging for oranges. It's like, why don't you just ever stay and eat? (laughs) You slowed the fuck down, you would actually get to eat. All right, so Picasso continues his unhinged lecture on art by putting bicycle handles on his head to make himself into a bull. He's like, magic. Change from one thing to the other. That is what I do. Create a new way of seeing things. And Henry points out that Picasso's art doesn't look like anything real, and which Picasso gently pushes to the side. And he explains that all all the other great artists before were always striving toward realism, but if they paint a wild horse, it will it will only just look like a wild horse. And when Picasso paints a horse, you might not see the horse, but you will certainly see the wildness. And Henry kind of digs it. He's into that, and not only that, but at that moment he says the wildness line... Uh, Picasso looks over at his model girlfriend and they exchange a look that implies a lot of pornography. <laughs> uh, Picasso explains he's trying to give spirit a form. And like, like I said, little Henry soaks this all in very wide-eyed. Then the dumpster diving friend um, says, tell your tutor that Picasso told you that. And Henry explains that Miss Seymour doesn't know who that is. And that's when the hot French model says, 
But one day she will. And she ain't wrong. Yeah, she not wrong. I mean, actually, Miss Seymour will get to know Picasso a lot better in this episode. Yep. So the adults leave Norman and Henry <laughs> at some point, we presume, at like 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, on the streets of Paris uh, and insisting they come to the party tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Uh, not worrying for a moment that Henry would be grounded for approximately ever yeah. after, you know, this whole incident. But he's into it. He's like, I really want to attend this he's party. Like, I can make it happen. Yeah. So, yeah. So then um, he sneaks into his. Yeah. We're, we're, we'll get right to get to that. So, because we haven't, because there's a whole thing that happens oh, yeah. before they even get back. So, while walking the streets of Paris at night, Henry says Picasso's paintings are stuck in his head and they look different to him now. Um, and it's and it's sort of like he, he looks out at the streets of Paris and he's like, it looks different. And yeah, then Norman said, can... and Norman's like, well, they're the same. And he's like, not to me. So it's like Picasso has opened, opened up his... his third eye. Like he can now see the world in this artistic way uh, after that, after that talk that they had and it's like this wow this really cool moment and then holy shit a uh, pimp <laughs> grabs henry you know by the shirt slams him up against a fucking wall and hoists him three feet off the ground and then we get a hilarious like three stooges like that is literally bite. what i have in my notes <laughs> so the so the guy grabs so the pimp grabs and lifts him off the ground and says where is the girl and the other pimp grabs norman and so if you like just setting the tone up until this point, you know, there was the, the bar, the barroom brawl was a little silly earlier. So it like gives you a hand of it. But like in terms of violence against children, we're not that far away from the Moroccan slave episode where people were just straight up killed on camera and like little children are being whipped and crying. So seeing like these kids just being accosted in the streets is kind of like at first it literally did. I was like, Jesus Christ. We saw this guy with a straight razor in his hand earlier. And now he's literally threatening a nine-year-old. However. However, like you said, Three Stooges <laughs> bullshit happens. He pokes him in the eye with two fingers. Yep, he does the two-finger eye poke. That causes him to drop. So then he stomps the guy's inset. And then he immediately punches him in the breadbasket with all of his nine-year-old strength. And the guy keels over. And he just keels over. And then scrawny little Norman easily bests the hardened French criminal. And they, they immediately are able to take off running. And in the style of in, all Indiana Jones movies, everything we just described gets punctuated by these little cartoony sound effects and music. Because it's like, it's very silly. And it's meant to I be. I mean, literally, it was boink. And to be fair, there's plenty of even the later cinematic Indiana Jones that is campy and goofy. This is of that tradition. So the kids make a break for it and like, like even the punch like Indy punching this guy in the stomach sounded like an anvil being hit with a shovel it's fucking ridiculous so um so the kids make a break for it and run into a graveyard and that's where we get another taste of how silly these french pimps are because one of them is still oh, i am too scared oh no the ghosts are gonna get me mon ami which by the way most of the time you'll see these foreigners talking in silly french accents even though there's nobody like, they do it, once again, for the benefit of the audience, but at other times, they will have a foreign language with subtitles. It is just fucking, like, throw it at the dartboard, which one we're going with at any given moment. And it's very clear from the beginning of the episode that he cannot speak French yet. Yeah, yeah, he, and Miss Seymour never even tries to speak other languages. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's like English is superior and other language can fuck right off. Yeah, Henry just got to, to France and, he, and French is still a little new to him. He does use a few French phrases and stuff like that. But but it's fine because apparently everyone speaks English. Yeah, everyone speaks English, even to each other when no one else is around. They just like to do it for fun. So he's like, oh, I'm so scared. Um, so Henry's like, come here, Norman. And they drags him into a mausoleum to hide, which turns to be a terrible idea because suddenly <laughs> he sees a skeleton and shits and pants and screams. He freaks the fuck out. Which is stupid because in the very first episode he was looking at a dried out mummy. Well, no, but yeah, but the mummy fell on him. He still got some fucking yeah. PTSD from <laughs> Ka falling on his face. And so he sees the skeleton, freaks the fuck out. Um, and then they run over there and they see the, the night watchman is passed out drunk. Like a good little stereotype. So, so this is fat old French dude is there and he's got like a white sheet pulled up over him and a, and a bottle of wine tucked under his armpit. And, and that's when Henry grabs the white sheet off him and waggles his eyebrows like his new friend, the French prostitute, was doing <laughs> earlier. Because like, I got an idea. Let's fuck with these guys. So the evil pimps are getting closer to the boy's hiding spot when suddenly there's an otherworldly moaning ahead. Then a spectral figure with a skull face floats up from behind the bushes. And the two men scream and cry. And, and run away comically, by the way. Like, this whole scene with them is so cartoonish. Yeah, they, it's very funny. No, it's completely ridiculous. Um, and then, you know, they, they run off and then the two boys uh, laugh, laugh their cleverness, revealing that they had just simply desecrated a grave. And they then they throw the skull away. They grabbed a skull out of the mausoleum, put it, tucked it under the sheet, and then lifted. Then Norman lifted Henry up so they could make this spooky looking thing. And they used, and the, they used the, they lantern. the lantern to underlight it from within to make it look glow. I mean, it was basically, I call it a reverse Scooby-Doo, if you will. <laughs> So back at the hotel, Norman tells Henry, uh, you got to come to the party tomorrow night. Um, and he's like, as long as I can get past Miss Seymour. <laughs> I'm probably dead. However, I will give Henry some creativity points because well, he, he admittedly pulls his greatest con yet. And lying is one of the, we're quickly learning, one of Indiana Jones' greatest powers. He can bullshit. Oh, God. So what he does, we see him creep past. So it's like Miss Seymour's passed out in a chair, clearly like parked by the front door to see if he sneaks back in. And which she he looks does. worried as shit, oh, too. No, she, Even she's, her sleep. That's the thing. It's like This bitch looks worn out. She's worn out, and that's the thing is, this, this the the earlier episodes have really kind of warmed. Like originally, Miss Seymour was presented as this total like emotionless ice queen, but over time, you realize that she's actually got this like very maternal like thing, and she was absolutely worried, sick. And then we see later, you know, different sides of her. Like Miss Seymour is one of the more rounded characters. Honestly, she's a more well-rounded character than both the parents, both the parents and Henry. Honestly, because he doesn't really change all that much, other than he just learns educational shit. Like, I have learned about art. I have learned about infidelity. Yeah, he, he apparently does not learn to ever, like, just stay put, yeah. not sitting, get in trouble. Sitting still and not getting into violent trouble is not ever in the cards. So, um, so anyway, he so Miss Seymour is, is passed out, worried about it. So he manages to sneak past her like a little ninja. Um, and, he, and he grabs a midnight snack, goes into his room, gets his books and papers, and then sneaks off again and goes into a different room. We're like, wait, what the fuck is he doing? So then... We move ahead to the next morning. Miss Seymour uh, wakes up, looks in Henry's bed, finds it empty. And there's like dramatic music playing like the child yeah. is missing. What, what's going on? And she's Henry, Henry. Little Henry. And then she opens up the, the, the wardrobe only to find little Henry inside, tucked Sound down. Sound asleep. 
like an angel. Where have you been? She yells. Studying. Here's my Da Vinci paper. Leonardo and the meaning of hearts. And, and he tells her that he was working in the wardrobe, um, you know, where it was quiet and he must have just fallen asleep. And so it's like he is really like he must have stayed up for like two extra hours even after that. Like he must have gotten zero real sleep as he stayed yeah. up all night working on this thing so he could pull this bullshit. Because like having the paper convinces her that the lie is true. And well, the fact that he was able to crib from all the lectures that Picasso gave him about <laughs> Da Vinci the night before. I mean, as a con, a nine-year-old con job goes is not bad and again she kind of looks like she doesn't thoroughly believe him but also can't disprove it yeah she can't prove it and it's like and she's and just he, sort of he, relieved it's just and like, he okay. looks at her am i in trouble am i in trouble am i are you going to punish me and she goes no but then she also tells him he's not allowed to leave the room until he fin just finishes a little book called les miserables by victor hugo and he's like great title because you know how miserable he is because he wants to go to a party with artists and prostitutes and not be stuck here uh, reading about this sad, sad life of Jean Valjean. Yeah, and he sits there all day until finally Miss Seymour starts to head off to bed. Yes. Then he's like, on my own. <laughs> um, anyway, so. Uh, Which is hilarious because it's like he doesn't even give her time to like get ready for bed. He immediately no, jumps out. No, the moment up. she's like, so out the of moment the room, she, she takes like, her frock off, I am out. Because she told him she was like, stay up for, you can stay up for one more hour than put yourself to bed, Henry. Yeah. And so. he was like, oh, fuck that nonsense. He gets all of his shit and fucking climbs out the window. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that's the thing. When the door was locked, he's like, got a time. Time for plan B, going out the window. Yeah, she thought locking him in would be enough. Yeah, but instead no. she just endangers his life much more. So he finds <laughs> him. So yeah, so he he dresses for his evening out with his little chapeau, and um, he slips out onto a ledge and nearly dies. Yep. Um, we see gorgeous views of Paris streets that imply, and once again, kind of giving us that hint that like he look he's looking around, and we get this this idea through the way the camera is shooting it. They're like. That we're getting a peek at how Henry's now seeing the Parisian night with his new artist's eyes. Um, and then he falls and is apparently dead. <laughs> like like the it cuts away from him. Because like some like what, what was it? Like, it? It cuts to Miss Seymour dropping something inside, like whatever. And like it's very much like he falls, and then we see a book fall on the floor, which is very much, oh shit, he's dead. And now granted, it was like he it wasn't he fell directly either because it's like didn't the yeah the thing like yeah the he was on like a whatever like some kind of drain drainage drain. pipe or whatever kind of fell over so and then, just, then we just see him fall out of frame then we see the book fall to the floor which is supposed to give us that heart-stopping moment that little henry splattered to the ground 80 feet below but no nah he just hit a balcony uh and but miss seymour is like suspicious i think she heard something and so this time she goes to check and yeah. finds out, oh no, the window is open. He is gone. He's definitely not in the fucking wardrobe this time. Except, and, and Henry was stupid enough to leave evidence behind the yeah. note. He wrote down a note to himself so he wouldn't forget where he was supposed to go. And then he left the note behind so Miss Seymour would know where to go. So now Miss Seymour is on the trail. She is. She's no hot more, on the no trail. No more French detectives. So uh, Henry catches up to Norman on the streets. He's like, the world's gone crazy, Norman. First, Miss Seymour locked me up in my room, but then I escaped and nearly fell from the rooftops. And he's like, whatever, you're late. It's like, don't fucking 
embarrass me, dude. This is a grown-up party. It's kind of serious, is what he says. <laughs> right before they open up the door, and it's like pure lunacy. Like, everyone's in costume. Picasso's dressed like a mime. It is absolutely ridiculous. Like, every, there's bright colors and like smoky haze everywhere. And Henry is like, this is a damn good time. Yeah. I have arrived. And um, so then uh, Picasso's girlfriend um, offers to introduce the boys to the other Americans who are at the party. So the boys meet um, a dude named Kahnweiler, uh, who's apparently a famous art dealer. And then the guy goes, like, he kisses the model's hand and then goes to kiss Henry's hand. And he, you know, correctly snatches his hand away from the uh, obvious pedophile. Because what the fuck? He's like, yeah, don't even. It was even, a weird He's scene. like, don't get me started about that dude we were hanging out with in Morocco. <laughs> it's like, no, you are not kissing my hand, motherfucker. That was such a weird detail. Anyway, standing with him is some lady named, you know, Gertrude Stein. And they're also introduced to Alice B. Toklas. Uh, like, the names are just dropping like mm-hmm. rain. Uh, Miss Seymour finds the address for the party. Le Lapin Agile which is a bar. And she gets there um, and she finds this stuffy kind of drinking establishment and she's like looking, she's like, I'm looking for a you know young boy and a teenage boy who have gone to a party. And immediately one of the guys there is like, Picasso. <laughs> like everybody knows this is the person who's co- contributing to the delinquency of children. It's gotta be Pablo. Yeah, it's like who else is hanging out with kids, weirdo? Yeah. Uh, so now we, we cut to Picasso dr- once again drunkenly firing his gun into the ceiling. And Henry's like, like a lunatic. Henry's like, it's like the Alamo. Wee! This is awesome. <laughs> I love Paris. And then we're introduced to yet another name drop. Some some guy named Rousseau. You know, nobody important. And, and apparently, he and Picasso have this like mutual admiration society, and they kind of do this like playing for the whole crowd in the room in front. And and Picasso's like, tell us your ghost story. And the old man gets very dramatic and begins to tell his tale of a ghost walking through the catacombs just as a sinister shadow drifts through the hall and the door handle opens and it's miss seymour she pops up in dramatic fashion ah! and there and like and well indy literally screams <laughs> yeah. but it literally screams her name like it's it's like simultaneously spooked by the story and fuck I'm busted <laughs> like all coming out all in one little moment and then hilariously picasso's got his pistol up by his face turns and looks at her like the camera in a sinister fucking way and says the tutor like oh shit he is going to drill <laughs> miss seymour how about some lead poisoning bitch oh so then say hello to my little friend <laughs> blam blam no that's not how that goes no it's more of a cutscene. yeah so we're gonna go away as i say he drags miss seymour off to where we assume be murdered <laughs> yeah and at gunpoint and so out of concern, Henry and, and Picasso's girlfriend go over to the keyhole. Henry's, Henry's genuinely worried that this lunatic's going to kill his tutor. You know, his girlfriend's like, no, 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 nothing. It's not going to be bad. And so we, and they're looking through the keyhole to see what's going on. Why don't you explain what we see in the inside of this room? It was Miss Seymour sitting there as Picasso, like, yells at her not to talk or move. And he's sketching her. Yeah, he has against her will forced her to be his model so we see him up there quickly drawing he's he's he's, he's got do not move got do his not pencils speak. and he's literally she's like can't i talk and he's like no you leave the talking to me he's just like <laughs> so unhinged her britishness does not know how to handle a spaniard turned up to 11 however apparently miss seymour is way way into art well yeah that's the thing and it's like and, and also not immune to flattery. Just the fact yeah. that he's even wanting her to model and he's doing this. You can see her trying not to smile even while she's sitting there. And as she goes through this whole scene, 
it goes into a full smile toward by the end of it it has warmed her cheeks and her eyes and she is like she's in. just genuinely into it but but it go it progresses because at first she's it's like this little little thing as he is asserting all kinds of dominance over her and she is not used to that but she kinds of gets into it yeah she kind of like, oh finally a man who can tame me um i mean she likes that she likes strong men henry jones senior for example and he's like yeah he's like the two boys have shown me they love art. You should let them be more independent. They will really understand art if they spend more time with me. Because Picasso and his massive ego cannot stop talking about how great Picasso is. So uh, Miss Seymour threatens to call the cops and Picasso immediately can fire back. He's like, the police are like critics. They have as much to do with art as ornithology does the birds. And that clever line breaks through Miss Seymour's mm. icy heart. And that's when her first genuine smile pops up. And she is an art lover. And um, she declares him the rudest man that she ever met. And he's like, when I want lessons of good manners from the English, I'll ask. And she just continues to smile. It's like, God damn it, you're charming. And so, Which I do not get because he doesn't come off as charming at all. He just comes off as fucking crazy a crazy person like you should avoid him at all costs i don't know why everybody's like woo. yeah so then she finally goes to see and because he was working so quickly i guess she was expecting it to suck and then she's like she sees this very nice realistic looking uh you know sketch portrait of her sitting there and she's like, oh you really can draw and he's like better than anyone alive because and of course she says that it's beautiful she says it's beautiful but then he does a switcheroo. He pulls the first sketch. He was doing two drawings at once. And the one behind it was a cubist version. And it's still very clearly Miss Seymour. Mm -hmm. Same pose, same emotion. But it's in this like completely wild new style that Picasso's invented. And her smile gets even bigger. She is like... She, what she's, she likes it. She's into it because she's an art person. And she realizes this is exciting and, and cool. And he's he's helped her see what he's doing there. So... Miss Seymour just isn't mad anymore. Yep. But it's still time to go. And Henry asks, uh, he, but then Henry's like, I want you to come over here. What do you think of uh, this this painting that Picasso did the day before, the one, the imitation Degas? So Picasso is over there bullshitting the art dealer, Conviler, claiming that he'd purchased the piece from Degas for a few hundred francs. He's trying to convince this other guy it's a real Degas. Um, and this guy, you know, this guy being a guy who knows his Degas, that's part of the the, the flex, is saying, I'm, mm -hmm. I can paint so good, I can just imitate Degas and no one will even and, know. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, pawn it off as a Degas. So Conviler offers a thousand for it, uh, but Picasso says he couldn't possibly take such a generous sum because the piece wasn't signed. Uh, but Conviler says, no, no problem, we can get Degas to sign it. Degas is right, we can get him out of here anytime. Uh, and Picasso agrees he'll take the thousand francs, um, but he demands to be there for the honor of watching Degas sign it. Because, of course, this is all part of his fucking prank to get Degas to sign one of his pieces to show off and flex that Picasso is the greatest and the best and the smartest and the most cleverest, etc. And, yeah, the most narcissistic by far. Yes. And this is where we're going to take our, this is where, in, where Indiana Jones is going to be a hero <laughs> to help to help put a pin in this guy's ego for two fucking seconds. Um, so on the walk back, Norman gives Henry a, a, a memento for their adventures, um, which was that cubist drawing that, that Picasso had signed himself. 
and Henry folds it and tucks it away. That's pretty cool. But he's now got yeah. a, he's now got a, a fucking Norman Rockwell signed by Picasso uh, in his pocket. Now back in Le Lapin Agile, uh, Picasso is bragging about taking down Degas. He's like an old bull being taken down by a dashing matador. You know because Picasso is Spanish. You see, uh, and his friends are calling him out for being a complete asshole. Like, why are you going to this link just for your fucking ego? Get over yourself. But he will not listen. He is so in love with this plan to get one over on Degas. This is the the big the, the big scene where where uh, Degas is supposed to sign this painting for the art dealer Cartweiler, and Henry is standing there at this moment. And at one point, uh, Degas kind of is looking at it. He's like like he doesn't really remember. He's like, I must have been tired. Uh, but then he goes ahead and he leans over to Henry and he says, "The pigment I use doesn't smell anything like this." So he totally knows this is yeah. not one of his paintings. But he signs it anyway. Picasso loses his goddamn mind at this point and goes on a narcissistic rant about how he's a genius and Degas an old fool and and just I mean because the whole, it was it was never about money because Picasso if he wanted money he'd just sell his Cubist work which he will not sell he is so but it's not because it is just purely about the flex it's about the ego so he's just running around the room and then pissing off Cartwright is like well I, I I believe you owe everyone here an apology but Pablo drags in the boys as witnesses he's like yeah. Yeah, you saw me. You saw what I did. But they're a little over Picasso at this point. They're like, nope. See you do shit, buddy. Yep, nope. Didn't see a damn thing. Degas is obviously Degas. Yeah. And then Norman says, looks like a Degas. Yeah. And it's signed by Degas. Degas. Then Picasso goes violently insane and probably would have shot everyone in that room dead um, if, if he wasn't stopped. So Henry decides to, to, to pull another one and... Like, maybe sprinkle a little salt in his wound and once again, like, kick Picasso in the nuts just a little bit more. So he pulls out Norman's cubist sketch that Picasso had signed and offers to sell it to Conviler, who is absolutely delighted because Picasso does not sell any of his cubist paint pieces whatsoever. That's why they're so fucking in demand and everybody's going crazy for them because he keeps... He hoards them. them. He hoards them and suddenly there's this signed Picasso that he get his hands on because it belongs to this little kid. Um, and everyone praises the sketch, including Picasso's friends, just because, once again, they were in on this plan to fucking... Uh, just, yeah, they were like, we're really dogpiling over. On Picasso. We're over you, Picasso. And they were like, yep. And then he starts going yeah, and nuts. Then, well, then that's the thing. They start praising the sketch. And like, only mm-hmm. Picasso could do such a great work. And because of Picasso's ego, he can't help himself. So he's like, yeah, it's me. Sure. Sure. And then Conviler costs up a thousand francs because they kept driving the price up. <laughs> uh, and But then Henry gives half of it to Picasso yeah. and half of it to Norman because he didn't want the money. He just wanted to make everybody feel better and make his point. Everybody's friends again, thanks to the power of money. And we still don't know why he's there because he should have been dragged away yeah. never to return to yeah. these fucking lunatics. Ms. Seymour was very um, trusting of Norman Rockwell once again. Just whatever. So at the end, you see Pablo lifts little Henry up in joyous celebration of fraud and they hug it out as we fade back into the 1990s as old and he, Well, he said he was like, I should be your art. Oh, yeah. yeah I should be like, your art dealer. He's like, yeah, you should have me as your agent. I could, We could be making some sweet bank. Because you see, I am a mm-hmm. hustler. <laughs> but no. So, yeah, they, they, they're, they're hugging... And that's when we fade back into the 1990s as old Indy's story is winding down. At this point, he's followed the yuppie blonde lady into the auction itself. And he's like, I'm not sure if Picasso ever knew, but Degas was almost blind at the time. But Degas was a sly old fox. I think he knew what was going on. 
So in the end, the joke was on Picasso. So the woman at her toilet by Degas hits the auction and goes and eventually sells to this Japanese businessman looking dude to, for $4 million. And they, they get yeah. a little private chuckle out yeah, of it. Yeah, and so Indy taps the, mm-hmm. the, the winner on the shoulders like, goodbye. <laughs> and the guy answers, I hope so. One day we'll be rich enough to afford a Picasso. Smirk, smirk. Get it, get it. <laughs> Because it really is uh-huh, a Picasso. Uh-uh. <laughs> and no one knows except old Indiana Jones and this random lady that's there at this auction for some reason. Yep. Because everyone else is presumably very dead. And there we go. That's what happened in that episode. It was weird as shit. There was so much fucking it just sure weird. Was. And what a tonal shift from the episodes we've been doing before. Everything's so fucking dire and serious. Like I said, murder, child slavery, and um, a a family near being torn apart. And then now we get wacky hijinks with Pablo (laughs) Picasso screaming and firing his gun into the air. And, 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 you know, pimps chasing children into graveyards and And being scared away by Scooby-Doo hijinks. Yeah, and he became friends with a young, young cool Norman Norman Rockwell. Rockwell. So, speaking of all that, that leads us perfectly into the next section. It belongs in a museum! This is where we go over the historical figures, places, lessons, and artifacts featured in the episode. And holy shit! Yeah, this We got some names to chew through. This one's packed. So, our very first name dropped today is Edgar Degas, uh, known as for being a French... Artist uh, for paintings, sculptures, and drawings, uh, best remembered as, as a key figure in the Impressionist movement. Mm-hmm. And he is very, very good. Personally, I think Dega, I like Degas better than Picasso, but that's me. Yeah. Well, and they are, you know, two different. Very eras. different. And again, now, I I like Impressionist paintings. I'm a, I'm a Monet guy, but I'm I certainly. I love Monet. I do. Uh, I wouldn't turn down a Degas, Degas if somebody wanted to give me one to hang on my wall. Um, so, yeah, um, just in brief, you know, Degas was born in Paris, uh, studied art, traveled to Italy to study the works of the Renaissance masters. Degas actually rejected the term impressionist and preferred to be called a realist or an independent. Because, uh, like, in his idea, like, impressionism was realism because it was sort of like when you first glance at something, that first flash of an image you get before you've had time to really Adjust. pull in the details, that's what that, that's that instant that he, that he was trying to capture. So he didn't like Impressionist. Just didn't... He wasn't his thing. Um, he loved doing experimentations with various oils and different mediums. And he liked being... Really, he was like a George Lucas is with movies, you know, to tie it into Indiana Jones. How George Lucas was more of a technical filmmaker doing all this fancy stuff. It was kind of like he used to have Picasso do the thing where he blew the hot water mm-hmm. onto it. Like, that was part of a Degas technique to get that kind of, like, loose... I don't even know. I'm not a good person to describe art terms. But to but to soften those edges to to get that impressionist look that he was going for yeah yeah and like old Indy said Degas discovered uh, suffered from deteriorating eyesight in his later years so he actually focused way more on sculpture and 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 Picasso maybe not even realizing it but was even hinting it when he was talking about how he's like he literally closed his eyes at one point and mm-hmm. saying Degas feels and it's like because Degas can't see shit. <laughs> There's a whole other side story about Picasso we'll get to regarding vision in a second. Uh, Degas had an extensive collection of art, um, including works uh, by Delacroix, Gray. Like, he had a ridiculous art collection that was sold after his death. 
Woman at Her Toilette, is an oil painting uh, created by Degas in the late 19th century. It was, uh, as according to the real world, was actually painted uh, before 1890. So ah. the fact the idea was just popping on the scene in 1908 is uh, historically bullshit. Uh, the painting was part of Degas did a whole series of these intimates. I mean, mm-hmm. and the idea is Picasso was imitating this. Yeah. But still. Yeah. yeah, and it was a very unconventional composition. Like the woman was partially cut off by the edge of the canvas. It was not something you'd, you wouldn't, you normally see the subject of a painting framed center, but it's like, a, it's like a weird thing. The color palette was unusual. Just, you know, it's a striking painting. There's very loose brush strokes, and it's there's light and a lot of color in this piece. That painting, by the way, can now be seen in person at uh, the Art Institute of Chicago. Oh, very cool. Not <laughs> whisked away by a Mr. Yamaguchi or whatever that guy's name was. Uh, at a the great end. buy. Yeah, great buy. <laughs> so uh, next up was Henry's pal Norman Rockwell. You know, Paintings you can't get away from the, if you the wanted most to. American of all artists, or at least if you're of the boomer generation now, looking back on the, that old 1940s and 50s nostalgia, you can't get away from the image of Norman Rockwell, America. His work graced the covers of the Saturday Evening Post for over four decades, which made him one of the most beloved uh, artists in the United States and most recognizable. You can instantly tell a Rockwell when you see one. He was born in 1894 in New York City, showed instant talent for art and uh, made it all the way a prolific career died in 1978 so oh same year you were born um he produced over 4,000 original works during his lifetimes i mean one of the most prolific artists ever you know he painted the four iconic images known as the four freedoms during world war ii which were inspired by um by fdr's famous speech uh which earned him the presidential medal of freedom uh, which was the highest civilian honor ever in 1977. So the year he before he died, he was granted that same one, that same honor that Donald Trump bestowed on Rush Limbaugh a few years ago. <laughs> Sorry yeah. to remind you of that, but that's the first thing that popped in my head. And despite how great, and I agree that Rockwell is, uh, his art is often dismissed to this day as sentimental and idealized and just not, you know, pushing the envelope or whatever, but fuck those guys. I think Norman Rockwell is great. And he deserves his place. Yeah, absolutely. He was also a dedicated supporter of the Boy Scouts of America and illustrated their annual calendar for over 50 years straight. Okie dokie. So there you go. Um, However, I don't believe there's any reason at all to believe that Rockwell was hanging out in Paris at 16 years old in 1908. Apparently (laughs) alone. Yeah. Just Just hanging. The episode, it's so implausible, it doesn't even bother to come up with a reason why. He's just 16-year-old Norman Rockwell just living in Paris on his own. Just hanging out in the Louvre, waiting for Indiana Jones to show up. So they, like I said, they didn't even bother. Didn't happen. All right. Now, of course, the kind of center of the episode is Mr. Picasso. I mean, nobody needs to be told who fucking Picasso is, but just in case you know, you have time traveled here somewhere, Picasso was a Spanish painter, sculptor, printmaker. He co-founded the the Cubist movement. Turned out that French dude he was hanging out with that whole episode was the guy he co-founded it with, and. He became one of the most influential and famous artists of the 20th century. He revolutionized yeah. art in an incredible way, and this episode was very much trying to show us that he was a genius. Just a He was also a goddamn lunatic. He was a complete lunatic and maybe a bit of a prick. Uh, he was born in 1881. Like Norman Rockwell, also showed an incredible talent for art in his early age. And his career spanned over 75 years because he didn't die until 1973 as an old fucker. Um, his actual full name was 
Pablo, Diego, Jose, Francisco, De Paula, Juan, Nepomuchino, I can't even pronounce that one, Maria de los Remeros, Kiprasinos, de la Satisma, Trinidad, Martyr, Pachico, Glito, Ruiz, y Picasso. None of that was pronounced correctly. So he just went by Pablo. You can't Picasso. say his name in a single breath. His blue period lasted from 1901 to 1904, and then his rose period until 1906 were named after the dominant colors in his paintings during those periods. He had this one groundbreaking painting in 1907 that was like, that paved the way for the whole Cubist movement. Also uh, hugely prolific. Uh, he, they said, estimated 50,000 artworks in his name, including over 1,885 paintings, over 1,228 sculptures, 2,880 ceramics, and over 12,000 drawings. Jesus Christ. That's a lot. And during uh, WW2, Picasso remained in Nazi-occupied Paris, where he continued to create art and even joined the French Resistance as a member of the Communist Party. Picasso. He was, yeah. He was a lot. He was a lot, lot. And now we're going to move on to that pretty lady who's a bare ass we saw in the episode, Fernando Olivier. Um, she was a French artist, model, writer, and muse who was most famous for her relationship with Picasso uh, during his early years in Paris. She was the subject of many of his paintings and drawings, and her presence was considered a huge influence in the development of his artistic style. Uh, she was born in 1881 in, in Paris. She had a very difficult home life uh, in her early years and left to become an artist model because she was hot and not at all shy about taking off her clothes. Nope. She met Picasso in 1904 and became his companion and muse for nearly seven years. Olivier later wrote memoirs about her life with Picasso and her experiences in the Bohemian Parisian art scene. And she died in 1966. So she actually made it all the way to the 60s. She was probably a groovy as fuck old lady. So um, she started her relationship with Picasso when she was still married to another dude. And she and Picasso never got married. She was considered Picasso's first great love, um, as she appears in, in many of his early works, including that famous painting that launched the Cubist movement. She was also romantically involved with other prominent artists over the day, including Renoir and Matisse. Ooh, good for her. So she boned herself a few uh, well-known yeah, names. She, yeah, she was like, I want to be in all the art. I am, yeah, literally. It's like she is immortal because she inspired some greats. And I, I can imagine how she did that inspiration. Sounds good like she for was a you, good time. Bitch. Good no, seriously, for you. So, sounds like a good time. Uh, Olivier's memoirs, uh, Picasso and his friends, and loving Picasso provide valuable insight. They're, they're all one of the reasons we know so much about what a fucking unhinged lunatic Picasso was, because it really gave us insight. It was like she lived with him and loved him and and all that for years especially during that part of that artistic community in the, the early 1900s. But their relationship ended in 1911, but they did remain in contact, and Picasso continued to paint her even after they separated. So he was not so bitter that he, she still inspired his artist's soul even after they were parted. Well, I mean, he, at some point he had to understand that he was a fucking lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he probably, every once in a while you just calm down like, yeah, this one, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. And this yeah, this episode portrayed her as being a pretty chill chick, pretty cool. Yeah, she was actually really calm. Yeah, she was she was she was warm, calm, but just very into. I mean, the she art was the one who the was she. T- she was talking more to the boys and not yeah. at them constantly. Right. And then there was that you know the guy that they just hung out with. And that turned out to be Georges Brock. 
He was a French painter, sculptor, and printmaker who, guess what, alongside Pablo Picasso, co-founded the Cubist movement. So he really got the short shrift in this episode. Yeah, I mean, he was just like he was just presented assistant. like He's just like, I am Pablo's assistant. Instead of being like, no, this guy was a peer and a, and a fellow artist. And at the time, you know, just as big a deal. They would have been sharing his space, not... Yeah. But, you know... Like, he was like, oh, bring me my paints. Yep. So, like, him and Picasso kind of developed the visual language of the Cubist movement. That Basically, they broke art and, and made something new, which is something that only happens so often. Uh, he died in 63. Um, Brock was also... Um, he was not only for being a skilled artist, but he also created designs for jewelry, tapestry, and stained glass. So, oh. there's a lot of... He varied off in, actually, Cubist stained glass. Very cool. Um, he served in the French Army during World War One and was seriously wounded in 1915, which kind of fucked with his art career for a little while. But it became more colorful and expressive after the Great War, and he distanced himself from like those geometric cubist mm -hmm. forms and got more into to other styles. Um, and it was eventually awarded the Grand Prix for painting at the 1954 Venice Biennale. Rock was an avid bird watcher, and birds frequently appear as motifs in his work. There okay. Now we know a little bit more about Brock. Well, I didn't even think they mentioned his name. No, they did. At the end of the episode, I caught it, um, where it was literally like, Henry literally says, Monsieur Brock over there, what do you mm -hmm. think? Like, that was literally, I think, the only time his name was said. I might be wrong, because there was a lot of French and a lot there of names. There was a lot of things going on in this episode. Just a lot. So, and we're not even done yet, because we've got to move on to, uh, to, to Daniel Henry Kahnweiler. Uh, he was a, a German-born prominent art dealer collector and publisher even though they portrayed him as american and you know that's the whole thing but he actually traveled around quite a bit um he played a significant role in the development of the modern european art movement because he was a guy with money who actually moved art around and got it seen by the people with the money he was born in 1884 in germany uh, but he moved to paris in the early 1900s and opened an art gallery so him being portrayed as American doesn't seem very legit, but whatever. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Uh, he became a champion of the modern artists. He was like one of the, like like he was shown in the thing, like obsessed with the Cubists. He really wanted to get his hands on Picasso uh, and include Anne Brock and Juan Gris. Some five facts about Kahnweiler. Uh, he is considered one of the primary promoters of the Cubist art movement. Like without him, we might not know who the fuck Picasso is. Because Picasso was going to lock all his shit in a room forever. Uh, during World War One, his gallery was seized as enemy property due to his German nationality. So the French were not happy with him. Um, and he temporarily relocated to Switzerland. In 1920, he returned to Paris and opened a new gallery, the Galerie Simon, which later became the, uh, I guess it's called the Galerie Louise Larry, which I guess is famous. And I probably said it wrong because okay. my French is only so-so. And so in addition to his work as an art dealer, Kahnweiler um, was also an art historian and wrote several important like texts uh, about Cubism and modern art that you can read to this day. He continued working as an art dealer until his death in 1979. The oldest fuck from this list so far. You were, you know, I was four years old mm -hmm. uh, when this guy croaked. Uh, and, and through that long and prolific career really brought a lot of important artists up to the forefront. Very cool. So sometimes you got to respect the money man. Yeah, I had no idea who he was. Basically nothing more than a name drop and a standing there cameo. We got Gertrude Stein, um, who is, a, you know, being a writer. That was the name that popped up for me because she's a novelist, a poet, playwright, art collector. 
Um, and she is known for her development in the popularization and modernist movement in literature and art. She was born in Pennsylvania in 1874, and she moved to Paris in 1903, where she became a very uh, prominent figure in the city's avant-garde art scene. Uh, she hosted a salon in her home and frequented by uh, numerous renowned artists and writers of the time. So Good for her. Here's some interesting facts about Gertrude. Uh, her writing style is characterized by repetition and a focus on the kind of the musicality of language. It a, has a lot of sort of musical rhythm to her use. Uh, she popularized the phrase lost generation to describe uh, what happened to everybody after World War One. <laughs> Like, there was the attitude before World War One, and then the attitude after. She was friends with and collected the works of many famous artists, including, guess what? Picasso, Picasso. and Henri Matisse and Juan Gris. Uh, she collaborated with composer Virgil Thompson on the opera Four Saints in Three Acts, which premiered in 1934. And her most famous work, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, is a memoir of her life written from the perspective of dot, dot, dot. Next person, Alex B. Toklas. Uh, she was an American-born member of the Parisian avant-garde art scene, best known for her relationship with Gertrude Stein and her involvement with the artistic and literary circles. So she was born in San Francisco in 1877 and moved to Paris in 1907, where she met with and became the forever life partner of Gertrude Stein, uh, where they stayed together in lesbian bliss. And Toklas managed her estate and promoted her work posthumously. So like after Stein was gone, her, you know, all but in name wife kept her legacy alive. So Toklas played an important role in managing Stein's literary and artistic affairs. So she's kind of like her agent and manager while they were together including their their famous salon in Paris and then after Stein's death that's when Toklas published her own memoir titled uh, What is Remembered in 1963. It's also known for her cookbook the Alice B. Toklas cookbook which included a recipe for hashish fudge which is something that you and I probably might enjoy very much. <laughs> that's awesome. Yes a concoction of fruits nuts spice and cannabis. Sweet. We can look this recipe up and try it ourselves. <laughs> uh, Toklas converted to Catholicism later in life, and her relationship with Stein remained a source of controversy within the church. It's like, yeah, I'm sure she like never regretted loving <laughs> Gertrude Stein. Following her death in 1967, um, she was buried next to Stein in Paris's famous cemetery that I'm not going to try to pronounce. But she actually got to be married in spousal fashion. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's who that person was that was mentioned for a half a second in this episode. Yeah. I liked it. I, I, I like the lesbian love affair. Yeah. I dig it. The and I, I dig that the French gave no fucks either. Definitely They're Paris like was a church. lot cooler than <laughs> certain other places. At least, at least, But then again, also in the scene that they were in. Yes. The, the avant-garde art scene is a little bit easier to be. Which again, it's like we had avant-garde art scenes here in America that were just as cool. Oh, yeah. Any all the cool bohemian art colonies all have oh, yeah. anarchists and, and gay people and just having cool parties and doing drugs and having way more fun than everybody else. Yep. Writers and artists and, and creatives of all kinds just kind of, you know, milling together and sometimes like doing drugs and having lots of sex. Absolutely. And now we're going to move on to the, uh, the old guy that was introduced toward the end of the episode, Henri Rousseau. 
lots of people heard about him. Uh, kind of a famous post-impressionist painter who gained recognition for his naive, dreamlike, and sort of fantastical scenes. Uh, completely untrained, like no no formal art training, is a self-taught uh, Rousseau, nonetheless, giant uh, impact on modern art and was a huge influence on, guess what, Picasso and Henri Matisse. Uh, he was born in 1844 in Laval, France, and Rousseau worked as a customs officer before turning to painting full-time in his early 40s. So he was like middle age before he really got going. He, Like I said, yeah, so- he was he was working. Yeah, he was a working man. He, like I said, largely self-taught and developed this unique, like they call it a naive style that set him apart from the, his contemporaries. And his work gained attention and was celebrated by the avant-garde artistic community. And he died in 1910. So we saw him two years before he would have croaked if it was the real world. Uh, so here's a few little, little tidbits about Rousseau. Uh, he never traveled outside of France. Yet he painted exotic jungle-like scenes inspired by visits to botanical gardens and just illustrations from books. He just used his imagination That's uh, nice. to do some really cool stuff, having never once you know, left Western Europe or even France. Uh, his paintings uh, were initially ridiculed by critics who, once again, called him childish and unsophisticated. This is like think, you know, kids' finger paintings, you silly man. And then, of course, critics... I yeah. believe Picasso had something to say about critics early in the episode mm-hmm. about how the police and critics were about as useful as each other. Kind of a based thing for Picasso to say. Despite his lack of formal training, Rousseau was a meticulous painter um, who really did work on his details. Like it may have looked like naive and childish, but it's like it was all very much on purpose. Yeah, and it was layered. Yeah. In 08, same as year as our episode, Picasso held a banquet in Rousseau's honor that recognized him as an artistic genius and wanted to introduce him to this younger generation of artists. Like, he didn't want his old friend to be forgotten because, you know, he was about to, you know, to drop dead any day. <laughs> so, that, you know, Picasso did have his moments and his good side and certainly had respect for that guy. Rousseau's work has been associated with the primitivism movement, which sought to explore and celebrate non-Western artistic traditions. So the bar that everybody was hanging out with was actually a pretty famous cabaret, La Lapin Agile. Well, it looked like a damn good time. Yeah. That bar, established in the late 19th century, uh, played a significant role in the early 20th century art scene as it was a hub for artists, writers, and performers, contributing to the vibrant cultural scene from the Montmartre district in Paris. So just a few little things. Uh, the uh, The name of the place, La Lapin Agile, is, is French for the nimble rabbit. Okie dokie. Uh, which was a change from its original name, Cabaret des Assassins. Literally, the Cabaret of Assassins. <laughs> They're like, that seems a little... Well, apparently, there was a painting by artist André Gilles that depicted a rabbit jumping out of a saucepan that was hung over the door, so they decided the art, the name needed to go with the art. So the nimble rabbit became the name of this watering hole. The cabaret was owned and managed by Frédéric Gérard, also known as Père Fred, Paw Fred, uh, <laughs> who was a supportive, a supportive patron of the arts and encouraged emerging talent. So, like I said, we're talking... Um, at the Nimble Rabbit, we got Picasso. Uh, we got, um, I'm going to mispronounce that name, so I'm not going to say it. You'll never know. It's Italian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Henri Matisse, uh, Georges Braque, um, and just and many others. Everyone that was in this episode? And more. Uh, Picasso's painting of the same name as this place in 1905 depicts a scene inside the cabaret and is considered one of his most important early works. It was sold for $40 million in 1989. Wow. Uh, today, it continues to operate as a cabaret and remains a popular tourist trip. When we went to Paris, we could hang out in this bar. Sweet. 
which actually sounds like something I yeah, would want was, to do. Yeah, that, that sounds rad. Let's do it. So remember the little model airplane that was featured for 30 entire seconds? Uh-huh. Uh, that was that guy I was trying to pronounce badly, uh, Louis, Louis Bleru. Bleru? Uh, he was a French aviator, inventor, and engineer. Uh, he first achieved fame for making the um, first airplane flight across the English Channel in 1909, which is something he had not even done yet when this episode was supposed to have taken place. Uh, this dude was born in 19, 1872 in France, became an engineer, and before he did that famous flight, he designed and built a bunch of experimental airplanes and a helicopter-like thing that totally didn't work. But everybody was trying that ever since Da Vinci thought of it. The big historic flight was July 25th, 1909. And it was the Bleu 11 monoplane. So it was the 11th model. And it took him 36 minutes and 30 seconds to make it across the English Channel. Earning him prize of a thousand pounds offered by the Daily Mail newspaper to anyone who could actually pull the shit off. Uh, so following his success, uh, he founded this aeronautics company, which became one of the largest uh, manufacturers of uh, flying war machines in Europe going into World War One. Okay. And his contributions to aviation extended far beyond that. Um, so he just continued to push the edge of, of the industry and the science of aviation until his death. And of course, let's see, we visited the Louvre at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Might know. Now that happened, that building just happens <laughs> to go back to, you know, the 12th century. Uh, one of the largest and most iconic art museums in the world. It houses an extensive collection of art, sculptures, and artifacts that span many centuries. In the early 20th century, point where this episode was, the Louvre was already considered the major cultural center and repository of important works of art, which is why Miss Seymour wanted to be there like before the doors open, because there's a lot of Louvre to see. So it was originally built as a fortress under the reign of Philip II in the late 12th century, then turned as a royal palace under Louis XIV, until he moved the residence to the Palace of Versailles. Versailles. In the late 17th century. Uh, the museum officially opened to the public during the French Revolution in 1793 uh, with the collection of 537 paintings, many of which were confiscated from the royal family in the church by angry peasants who says, no, this, the art belongs to the people. Viva la Revolution. Yeah. Um, in 1908, the Louvre's collection had grown to include works such as the Mona Lisa, uh, Venice de Milo, Winged Victory, and other significant pieces. The Louvre pay, played an important role in the development of art and art history as a discipline in the early 20th century and is one of the first museums to employ curators who specialized in different periods of art. So like, no, you're going to be in charge of, of making sure we have a good collection of this period and work, type of work. And so the Louvre's iconic glass pyramid entrance was designed, uh, was not constructed until the 1980s. So in 1908, the, the visitors would have entered the museum uh, through like the what they call the, the Napoleon entrance, because the thing we know didn't happen until our lifetime. And there was also a, a book by Victor Hugo name dropped, another oh, French yeah. dude, because poor Henry had to read Les Miserables. Just so you know, Vic Victor Hugo, awesome, a French poet, novelist, and playwright, widely considered one of the most important and influential figures of French literature. Best-known works include The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables, which, in case you, know, you missed the musical starring Hugh Jackman, 
Oh, that's not. Wait, what don't we're don't bring that one. We up. don't want to think of that. It, no, Hugh Jackman wasn't the bad thing about that. He wasn't the bad thing about that. That's a whole other conversation. But the story of the novel of Les Misérables uh, follows the story of a dude, an ex-convict named Jean Valjean, who's seeking redemption and atonement for past crimes. And it's just a long, sad story that goes from from one, one thing horrible to thing to the next, and into the it's French Revolution. Yeah, it's one of the longest novels in the world, which is why it's so hilarious that she gave it to a nine-year-old to read in an evening. <laughs> it is approximately fifteen hundred pages uh, in unabridged editions. And well, you know that's why we can't. It, it, that's why she couldn't get too mad that he wanted to escape. Yeah. It's kind of kind of fucked. Um, the novel initially met with mixed reviews, but eventually gained widespread popularity uh, just for how the tragedy and many, many adaptations. Victor Hugo spent 17 years writing that book, and it was inspired by real people and events that he encountered throughout his life. So it was a sort of melange of stories he'd picked up in France. And it's like, well, I'll just tack I'll just, this on. I'll turn every one. horrible story I ever heard about bad things happening to good people. <laughs> just put it into one, one novel. We'll just get it all out of the way then. Call it The Miserables. So there you go. And boy, that was quite a section. It was. It was much longer than usual. Whew. We're almost done. Because <laughs> here we get to... It's not the years, honey. It's the mileage. <laughs> this is the segment where we discuss the development of, of Henry Jones Jr. into the man and hero he will one day become. Oh, well, this one really opens that door. Oh, yeah, no shit. Like, there's a lot he, going on here. He kicked open that door. was like, this is my shenanigans episode. So in, like, thinking about this in terms of, like, things where so we got, like, again, curiosity on full display, always wanting to see what's in the next room, look at the thing he's not supposed to. yeah. Being, escaping out windows. If, if something is too dangerous, he's got to see, do, or try it. He absolutely loves to sneak out windows. Right. That is something that continues on throughout the rest of his life. He will. He'll just keep on doing that. Um, mm -hmm. He's he's very adaptable. So the moment he's thrown into a new environment or situation, he's just like, yeah. Rolls and he it. goes with this superpower where for the, these adults just fucking love this this little little cherubic little boy. And there's from no new reason for it at. all. Because he's, he's kind of bland. Not, yeah, he's not that interesting. I mean, there's these little moments every once in a while, you know. Yeah, but for the most part, but very I don't much get like it. that. Like I said, he's able to just fit in and make himself welcome in all these situations he does not belong in. Courage, high marks again, like not necessarily in zero common sense, but incredible bravery because he like he tries to fist fight a French pimp and, and wins. And, and and well, at one point he just fucking like I said pokes the dude in the eye stomps his foot punches him in the gut and runs away yeah he, i mean he earned some experience points in this this yeah, episode 100%. for sure i mean you know he tricks them yeah that was the creativity yeah a, a couple of different moments of creativity in this episode where he's like let's fuck with these guys and he creates the ghost uh using this the skull that he was frightened of he's a like well earlier. if this scared me i bet it'll scare these assholes too so he scares them off. He and then at the end when he when he when he helps reverse the the mm -hmm. joke on on Picasso, and, yeah, and which plays was a fun. joke on the art world for the rest of the time. Yeah, I mean that was pretty epic. We're like on his death, but he's like, I know some shit you guys don't know. <laughs> Perseverance, you know, despite being locked in his room and told this or that, he's like, I got a party to go to, bitch. <laughs> 
<laughs> we're going to do this. And he always figures out a way to get his way. And then, oh, his little trick with the closet. Like, I don't think she thoroughly bought it, but at the same time, it was very clever. He, yeah, once again, he is, I mean, we've, we've demonstrated, this kid is a super genius. <laughs> He's a little ADHD genius because, I mean, he is reading at college level at nine years old, uh, having to write these ass term papers. He's learning multiple languages. He's learning science and physics and he's doing physics lessons off the fucking leaning tower of Pisa. And the same time, like in these moments where he's like, required to be quick witted, he's very, he comes up with all these ideas. Uh, so yes, uh, artistic appreciation. Another thing, this is, this was, like I said, he, this was the, the story that this opened up his eyes. Opened up his eyes. Even more, even though he was in fucking Florence very recently, a city I would argue is even more artistic and beautiful than Paris. I've only been to Florence, yep. so I may be biased, but either way, it's just like he'd already seen a ton of paintings and sculptures. Was like, nah, fuck those guys. This is what opened me to art. That I was a little bit too focused on my mom banging that opera dude. Yeah, I mean, he he didn't really get to appreciate the art. Yeah, and it was a little of... bit more about the music, anyway. So, um, but this time he gets this deeper appreciation. It's like he literally got a new way of looking at things. Oh, now I understand what you're he's seeing when in a cubist painting. Um, another thing he shows off is the loyalty and teamwork, which is, you know, he's shown previous to this, but like he and Norman really hit it off and get this whole Tom Sawyer, mm -hmm. Huck Finn thing going on in this episode. It's very cute. Yeah. And then, uh, and then at the same time, uh, he pulls this little trick, which also helps throw some incredible praise at Norman being able to pull mm -hmm. off a, a completely a convincing Picasso and sell it for a thousand francs. And, I mean, he did it so fast. Yeah. I mean, that so was one of the things. They were like, he just picked it up and was like... Pachow. Yeah. So it's like we got these two artistic geniuses, and Henry made sure that, that both of them got their thing. And he, he was a way to, to boost up his friend, and he gave him the cash, even though he didn't have to. Yep. He could have just pocketed that money and been buying drugs the rest of this trip. But instead, he gave both the artists the money. He's like, you guys need this way more than I do. I'm being taken care of. Y'all need help. Take this. Uh, also, diplomacy. Because like it's like, like he's able to this is another time kind of ties in with his uh, quick thinking and creativity, but just like he he was able to talk Picasso out of shooting everybody dead and then got him all happy again, lifting up his arms. So you know when he when he doesn't need to poke somebody in the eye, he can sometimes talk people down. And of course, the art of lying. Oh, he is fabulous. Maybe his highest level trait so far because every episode he comes up with increasingly creative levels of bullshit. Yeah, and sells it. He can both planned lies like the whole wardrobe thing and also just like, ooh, on the fly <laughs> I'm going to come up with this shit right out of my ass lies. Yeah, he's good at it. He's a little fucking lion ninja. And of course, there's escape artistry. Oh, he's good at that too. Yeah. Again, well, well like he wasn't as good at it in the slave episode because he no. failed every <laughs> single time. However, you learn a lot through failure, and this time <laughs> he, he, he had it down. He's got it fucking down. Um, they they es they escape the, the window. He escapes from the pimps. This is where he starts really becoming um, his. This I think this is the first time we've really seen him do some violence. Yeah, and this is someone who's going to become an intensely violent man. <laughs> but this time he just pokes a pimp in the eyes, stomps his foot, and it just. Punches him right in the gut. Yep. With his little bitty soft fist. And then defeated him. Defeated him easily. 
and to be fair to this little shit, uh, <laughs> he does have academic diligence because even though he did blow off his homework, he then stayed up all night to finish his homework. Well, yeah, because that's 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 how, that's how he got to go to the party. To be fair, but yeah. I got a feeling that he doesn't. He always. I, th- I think he always turns in his shit to Miss Seymour. I don't think he. I have get zero impression that he's a guy. For one thing, she won't let him because she's yeah. usually standing over him. Like, I would lock you in this room for three days and I expect a, a dissertation when I come back and a and a jaw full of piss. <laughs> but yeah, he he's a uh, he's he knows that he has to do his homework. Yep. So he he does that. He completes the paper on Da Vinci. Pulling in some uh, quick crib cliff notes from Picasso. Oh, uh, we also get literature because he has to fucking read. We know he reads like half of Les Miserables. Yeah. In an afternoon, <laughs> or at least he pretends to. But honestly, I think he does because that he, is he, who he is. Yeah, he he's he is both an adventurous little kid and a fucking nerd. Yeah, he's which he will remain again the rest her, of his life. Yeah, he's a scholar for sure. Indiana Jones, you know, as an older guy, is a cool, tough adventurer and also a giant nerd who, who knows whips all out the his, things. Yeah, he knows. Whips out his book. He's the guy who can who who pulls out the book and can tell you about the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that's I think that pretty much covers it. Yep, that's we it did for it. This one, we have made it through. We have oh, Indy has now leveled up. Finally. Because, you know, at one point, he, he was at negative points. Yeah, he was not starting a good place. And this time, we had a fun, a fun little happy adventure. With insane Just with insane again. people. And oh. uh, speaking of insane people, thank you for sticking with us to the end of the episode. Thanking you again for going to ChainsawHistory.com, where we will sure you will subscribe either for free or to make sure you don't miss anything, or you're going to give us uh, at least $5 a month so you can hear every single one of these No Time for Love Dr. Jones episodes. You can hear the whole Value Tales series. You can read bonus articles, the full library of back content, and more.